Hi, I'm RJ from Tacoma, Washington. I'm Ray Vaughn from West Virginia. Hello, this is John from Brooklyn. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners. Like me. Like me. Like me. If you'd like to support the show as I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Mike Sachs, is a writer for Vanity Fair, among other outlets, and the author of the new book, And Here's the Kicker, Conversations with 21 Top Humor Writers on Their Craft. Uh, It consists of interviews with, when Mike says top humor writers, he's not kidding. Um, Many of the greatest humor writers of the past 50 years or so Ranging from, uh, say, Dan Mazur, who co-created Borat and Ali G uh, with Sasha Baron Cohen, all the way back to folks like uh, Irving Brecker, who uh, helped write many of the Marx Brothers' greatest films. If you're a comedy nerd like me, it's a heck of a read. Mike, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I once talked to a book agent. And I asked her, what kind of book do you think I should write? She had told me that I should write a book. And she said, well, you certainly can't write a book that's like your radio show because no one wants to read that book. So uh, on this on this radio show, one of the big things we do is interview comedians and comedy writers, probably a, a lot of folks who are more famous, if not more accomplished than the folks on the cover of this book. So I can only imagine that it must have been like a borderline ideological commitment on your part to put together this book. Why why did you want to write it? Well, there's nothing really out there like it. You know, the books that I grew up looking for when I was in a comedy as a kid were mostly books about your show of shows and Saturday Night Live, which was great, but there's only so many books that can be written about that. And when I looked into it further, I saw that there were no books with contemporary humor writers. So this was a few years ago, and I tried to get it published with through my agent with various publishers, and they all said no. And it was only because of a friend of mine, John Warner, who at that time was an editor at McSweeney's, that he was also an editor at an imprint at Writer's Digest Books, that he pushed it through. If it wasn't for him, this never would have been made. Why was it important to you to talk to comedy writers? Well, I grew up wanting to be a comedy writer myself, and it was such a mysterious world. I never really read about... I was more interested really in the writers for Letterman than I was for Letterman himself. The, the writing staff, when I was growing up on that show, was just top-notch. It was amazing. And I always used to look for articles about those people. Who were they? How did they get into that business? It was such a foreign world to me. You know, It was almost like something that would take place on the moon. I had no idea how to get from where I was to where they were. You know, I, th- I thought by talking to these people... It would uh, sort of lessen the mystery about it. Did you have preconceptions or ideas based on your career as a writer and sometimes a, as a humor writer uh, uh, about w- what these people would be like when you got to talk to them? Well, I read so many interviews. I did so much research for each person, up to 20 to 30 hours per person. I read so many interviews that they did already. I had a pretty good idea of what they would be like. You know, I, was, I interviewed 40 people total, 21 made the final cut. There were some surprises, but mostly it was uh, it was nice. It was, you know, they were willing to talk. Uh, I talked to David Sedaris for up to five hours, and he had no idea who I was. You know, with most of these people, I ended up talking to them not consecutively, but in 
overall up to 10 hours. Um, they're very willing to speak very honest, maybe not so honest at first, or not even honest. They were just, they, they would go into their usual answers at first, but by the time we ended, uh, they would usually be very honest about not only their, themselves, but their career and the craft and the business and everything else. How do you pick the 40 comedy writers that you think are, are worth tracking down for a, a book on comedy writers? Well, it came down to a few things. I had carte blanche. I could pick out whomever I wanted. And uh, I came up with a list of about 60 people. And it really just came down to who was willing to talk with me. A lot of people didn't know who I was and were not willing to speak to me. Um, surprisingly, a lot of women did not want, female writers did not want to be interviewed. I asked at least 15 top female writers uh, to participate and Either they didn't get back or they said no, which was surprising. But, um, you know, it did, uh, it did just kind of, I mean, it's funny too, the older generation, Irv Brecker, Larry Galbart, Dick Cavett, would get back to me immediately through no assistance, just through email or phone. Whereas some of the younger people, especially those out in Hollywood, it would take sometimes upwards of, uh, six to months to a year to try to nail down the time to talk to them. Did you start with a giant list? I did. Um, I just went through everything. And every show, every book uh, that I could think of, and I tried to uh, find an interesting person either on the show or uh, related to a movie. You know, for instance, Dan Mazur I wasn't that familiar with before doing research, but I thought, well, who writes for Sasha Baron Cohen? He must have writers. And uh, indeed, it did turn out, not only does Dan participate in the writing, but they have quite a staff who come up with those um, sometimes or so-called impromptu uh situations for those shows. One of the things that Dan Mazur talks about is uh, one of Sasha Baron Cohen's gifts is to be able to almost hold like a, a, a Milton Berle joke file in his mind at all times. He talks about the, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen breaking out jokes that they'd written five or six years previously. That's right. It, it, he They said they come up with thousands of pages of character background for each of the characters. For instance, when they worked on Barat, they had written uh, an entire background going back to Barat's uh, childhood. And uh, he said, ask me anything about Barat, I can name it for you. I can tell you what the deal is. I said, well, how old was Barat when he lost his virginity? He said, 11. I said, well, who did he lose it to? He said, his sister. I said, well, who's <laughs> Barat's favorite beetle? He says, the dung beetle. He doesn't know who the beetles are. So even, um, you know, everything is so drawn out and so particular and Sacha Karen is such a genius that he remembers all this thing all, all the details for instance he was asked at a Virginia rodeo what his religion was and he said uh, I, don't, I don't have a religion I worship the hawk <laughs> that was so hilarious now that had been written that that was not improv that had he had just he remembered what he had written down as if someone asked him what his religion was he was going to say I worship the hawk and someone ended up asking him that question um, who who were the cornerstones of this project? Who who when you you know were first pitching it to people or first conceiving it in your mind did you think of as being the keys? Well, I think Larry Galbart for me was a key. Here was someone who began to write humor professionally at the age of sixteen. I only knew this because I had read his autobiography a few years back, and it's really fascinating. He's he's the first generation uh, parents spoke Yiddish. His father was a barber. And he uh, just had the gumption to work his way into the business, writing for top talent while still a teenager. 
And then when, in his early 20s, he wrote for Bob Hope, and I think he was said he made $15,000 a week. Uh, this was in the 40s. You know, so here is someone who, who started then and is still going on strong today, who still has a hunger to, uh, to, to work every day and to, to get his stuff out there. Now, what about contemporary writers? What contemporary writers were you most excited to talk to? Well, I'm a huge fan of Mr. Show, and Bob Odenkirk has always interested me. I think he's an interesting character. He doesn't quite fit into the Hollywood scheme of things in a good way. And uh, I think the writing on Mr. Show will influence future generations like the writing for SNL did for those growing up in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s. I think the show, if you if you go back and look at it now, which is I think it's almost 15 years old, is still fresh and uh, sharp and uh, pretty amazing. And he turned out to be a great guy to talk to. We spoke for a couple hours, and he's just exceedingly honest, not only about himself, but about material not working, which is not something you hear too often from writers. I, I've had Bob Odenkirk on the show a couple of times before. And the most recent time that he was on was maybe um, I, I, maybe two years ago uh, when he was talking. He, his current project was working on a web series called Derek and Simon. Right. And he seemed almost... Um, he seemed almost sad. Mm-hmm. Did you did you find that quality in a lot of people that you talked to? Oh, certainly. I, there is um, there is an undercurrent of sadness running through practically every writer. Certainly, depression. You know, some have it worse than others. What's interesting is, uh, seven. I would say seventy percent of the people I interviewed suffer from OCD, and I've never heard of a, a connection between OCD and humor writing before. The only reason I asked is because I too suffer from OCD, and I was just curious i asked the first few people and then when they started saying yes i suffer from ocd i would ask everyone and uh you know really i would say seven out of ten people of of those i interviewed 40 people um did suffer from ocd so i actually contacted dr oliver Sachs, no relation and to ask him if if he knew of a connection he said he was not aware of one what kind of compulsions did you hear about well, David Sedaris uh, has written about this, where he feels the need to lick lampposts as he walks by uh, them on the street. I have just the opposite. I wouldn't lick it for a billion dollars. But he has a specific uh, tick, in, or even a obsession, I should say, where he has to stay in bed until 1021. If he wakes up at 830, he's not getting out of bed until 1021. If he gets if he gets up at ten, he's not getting out of bed until ten twenty one. At that point, he'll get out of bed at ten twenty one, and then his obsessions turn towards writing, where he has to write every day. Uh, if he doesn't, he doesn't feel comfortable. It's the sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mike Sachs, author of Here's the Kicker: Conversations with Twenty One Top Humor Writers on Their Craft. What person that you interviewed in this book? Um, surprised you the most was was the least like how you would expected you would expected them to be well you know irv brecker you spoke about him in the intro he's an interesting guy he's he was 93 years old when i interviewed him he died at 94 not long after i interviewed him and here was someone who got started in the 30s i don't know if i can even tell the story in the air but he he met milton burl i should say as a teenager and never forgot him <laughs> <laughs> Milton Berle was uh, uh, well known during his career and, and even to today for having a very um, uh, distinctive anatomy. That's right. And um, Irv compared it to a, a salami schlub, <laughs> which you don't hear too many references to anymore. But here was some Irv Brecker wrote for the Marx Brothers 
And he's really comedy, he was comedy royalty, and yet he was such a mensch and so nice to talk with and so willing to talk with me, even though he was obviously suffering at that point and couldn't hear very well. You know, a lot of these uh, writers of the older generation, such as Al Jaffe, who I interviewed, a longtime Mad Magazine contributor, were just so modest and so nice. No ego, no assistance, no staff. Get right back to you, answer any question you want. It was it was a surprise. I, I didn't imagine it would be that easy with them. Did you find that the people uh, you spoke to from the generation before um, American comedy changed in the uh, mid-1970s with the National Lampoon and Saturday Night Live um, and so on, D- did you find that the people who came from the generation before that were in any way different from the people who came uh, afterwards? I don't think so. I think they're the same people, the same sensibilities uh i asked her of record this i said if you could write anything well how does it i said how does it differ now with comedy uh than it did when you first started he said well now you can get away with anything which isn't necessarily a good thing we had parameters he said that we could we had to work within and that made me a better writer because of those parameters but a lot of people did mention the mid-70s the michael donahue doug kenny national lampoon slash and burn mentality as being sort of a schism where before, you know, it was actually quite, you couldn't get away with a lot. And then with National Lampoon, there were uh, Nazi jokes and, uh, you know, anything went. But a lot of people did, um, were influenced by that, those who came afterwards. Those who were uh, working years before that, like Irv Brecker, Al Jaffe, Larry Galbart, sort of thought, well, I mean, I could have done that too if I was allowed to, but I had to do what I had to do within those uh, constraints. One of the comedy writers that you write about who comes in uh, uh, in the more modern era um, but is very much born of that era is George Meyer. Um, he's a guy with a really interesting biography. He, he had come to Hollywood and written for television, and then he quit and moved to, what was it, Colorado? Colorado. Um, tell me a little bit about his story. He is an interesting guy. He he started writing for the... Well, he grew up in Arizona uh, with a big family, a very religious family. Then he went out to Harvard and wrote for the uh, Harvard Lampoon. And people are still talking about his writing from those days. It was so far out and so intelligent, so bizarre that uh, you know it's still being talked about. After college, he, he got a job writing for David Letterman, late... Uh, late night with David Letterman, Meryl Marco hired him. This was when the show was just beginning. And he eventually got tired of that uh, and went to SNL. And he said that all of his jokes, all of his sketches would normally come in the last 10 minutes, if at all. He had very strange ideas. So he quit television, went out to Colorado, and started up a magazine, a small magazine, um, 32 pages long, three issues total, that went out to, I think, 100 200, 300 subscribers, that became sort of the Rosetta Stone of comedy. It was called Army Man. And Army Man, if you look at it now, the byline consists of, I mean, you know practically every writer. Either they wrote for The Simpsons or New Yorker. Bob Odenkirk is in there. Uh, John Schwarzwelder from The Simpsons is in there. It it almost became a template for the comedy that would be... uh, emerging for the next 20 years. He parlayed that um, that sort of iconic magazine. And when we say magazine, magazine seems almost like an overstatement of what it was. It was like photocopied and uh, stapled kind of zine-type operation. 
Um, he, he parlayed that into uh, a role as uh, a writer on The Simpsons, and some would say that he was one of the most important guiding forces of what The Simpsons became. Right, and he, a lot of people um, say that it was because of his sensibility that The Simpsons became what it was. Uh, George Meyer is supposedly a master of the rewrite room, where he, I think he's written three or four scripts by himself, but mostly what he did was rewrite, and he was famous for rewriting uh, scripts and making them a lot sharper than they had been before. Even though they started off great, he would improve them to such a degree that each would become classics. And really, he was written about in The New Yorker about seven years ago, which is a very interesting article. One of his Harvard Lampoon uh, friends wrote about it, who's now a New Yorker writer, I forget his name. And that sort of um, created a myth about him that I think carries over to this day. People, When you hear George Meyer, he's sort of the bellwether for comedy writing. He doesn't, he doesn't have any patience for bad jokes or even mediocre jokes. He likes top-notch writing. And if he doesn't get it, he's not happy with himself or his writing staff. You pick up in uh, the interview with Meyer on um, an interesting thread in the episodes of The Simpsons that he got writing credit for. And, and that is that they're all very much about people becoming uh, disillusioned with, or, or many of them are about people becoming disillusioned with institutions. There's one where uh, uh, Bart walks out on Thanksgiving. There's one where Homer stops going to church. Um, was that something that you found commonly among the writers that you interviewed, that streak of uh, almost anarchism? I think so, and I think, I think that's why they became humor writers. And those that I interviewed, it was interesting. They didn't even fit in sometimes t with other humor writers. I mean, they were almost two generations removed from normalcy. So e even within their own group, sometimes they sort of stood out and were kind of lonely. <laughs> But, yeah, very much so against the system. It didn't matter what the system was necessarily, whether it was a church or education or a workforce. They would, I would say, every one of them uh, lashed out at one point or another and became what they became because of that system. Did you interview any uh, comedy writers who seemed really happy? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not even one! Well... Not the ones I chose. You know, I suppose if I had dug deeper, I could have found one or two, but I didn't. You know, it's funny. Most of them are pretty miserable, but they use that to push themselves. You know, someone like Bob Odenkirk is never going to be happy with his work. He's always going to want to achieve more. Uh, and I think that goes for every one of these writers. You talk to a lot of writers, and only a few of them were women, as you mentioned, both of the women that you spoke with, Meryl Marco and Alison Silverman, both of whom have been guests on The Sound of Young America in the past, were head writers for television programs. Um, Meryl, Marco, Mar Meryl Marco was the head writer of the David Letterman show in the early days. Alison Silverman, the head writer of the uh, Colbert Report, or co-head writer, I believe. Um, and both of them talk about their own struggles in finding uh, women to write for their shows. Um, what do you think is this? Are the special challenges for uh, women writers in comedy? Well, I just think the fact that you know these two came up um, where there weren't many women writers. So you know, not only I think most people grow up not knowing how to get into the business. But if you're a woman there and you, and you see so few 
female names, you might even be more intimidated. But I think that will change, and I think that is changing. Um, Alison Silverman um, doesn't necessarily like to be asked what it's like to be one of the few female head writers in television. She feels that it was uh, not necessarily the fact that she's female. It's just that she worked, you know, very hard, just like anyone else, came up, and is where she is, uh, you know, because of talent. But she did mention that she feels that it, you know things will change in the future, where there'll be more uh, women writers uh, on staff on various TV shows and on uh, you know movies. I mean, you see it now in movie scripts. There's a gang out in Hollywood where it, I, I forget the name of the group, but it's four or so friends that are just churning out comedy scripts. Oh, when but, you said gang out in Hollywood, I was going to guess MS-13, the world's most dangerous gang. And they're actually quite creative. Have you ever spoken to them? Oh, I've seen their artwork on the walls in my neighborhood. <laughs> right. Well, part of their hazing process is writing a script for Hollywood. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I forget the name of these, these women. One is Diablo Cody. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's changing. I think it's good. Uh, you know, I don't know why there are a few women. I have no idea. But, you know, Meryl Marco was her, her purpose or her, her main, um, sense was was to was to protect the show late night with david letterman she didn't want to hire a woman just because she was a woman she wanted to hire the specific type of writer who was able to write in david letterman's voice which most people men or women weren't able to do my guest is mike Sachs, author of and here's the kicker conversations with 21 top humor writers on their craft we'll have the rest of our conversation after a break it's the sound of young america from maximumfun.org and pri public radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Thousands of people across the world already listen to Jordan Jesse Go every week, but do you? Jordan Jesse Go is a freely flowing comic conversation with me, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart, and my comedian and TV host super pal, Jordan Morris, boy detective. Not to mention awesome guests like Rob Corddry, Martin Starr, and Andy Daly, to name a few. Jordan Jesse Go is an iTunes staff favorite and a great way to keep your head up in difficult times. It's 75 minutes or so of good times every week delivered to your iPod free of charge. Just visit MaximumFun.org and click on Jordan Jesse Go or search for Jordan Jesse Go in iTunes today. You'll be glad you did. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mike Sachs. His new book is, and here's the kicker, Conversations with 21 Top Humor Writers on Their Craft. When I interview somebody that I really admire, I get super nervous beforehand. And I remember, for example, interviewing uh, Terry Jones, maybe five years ago. And I interviewed him over the phone, um, and I was literally you know, six or 7,000 miles away from him uh, but I remember my hands were, like, shaking as I dialed the phone. Mm -hmm. um, who were you most nervous to speak to, even with 30 hours of preparation? <laughs> well, I think, uh, for some reason, Buck Henry, I was quite nervous, because he struck me as a person who doesn't suffer fools gladly. And uh, he turned out to be extremely nice, extremely patient, but he's not one to um, make the small talk necessarily. But, you know, I really didn't, I wasn't that, I mean, if I had to meet, uh, you know, speak with them in front of an audience, I probably would have been nervous. But this was on the phone, as you say, a couple thousand miles away usually. 
and um you know, because of that buffer, it was usually, it was usually easier. I did meet with uh, certain people and I was nervous about that, but they all turned out to be very nice. If they're willing to meet with me, then they usually turn out to be quite nice. Buck Henry is a sort of intergenerational figure in the history of comedy. You talk with him a lot about, um, writing The Graduate, but he also wrote for Get Smart and then later became well known as a performer on Saturday Night Live and even The Daily Show. Right. He was 40. For 42 when he first appeared on SNL, which when you look at the early cast, none were over 30. It was a very young cast, a lot younger than people would, might imagine. Um, he just had that sensibility. Uh, he downplayed it. He said that Lauren Michaels just asked him to be on the show because he couldn't find anyone else. But he was such a perfect fit on that show, and he was so willing to do anything to play the seediest type of characters. He played a child molester, Uncle Roy, which you couldn't get away with in a million years today, but he managed to pull it off. He just he just went for it. On the other side of the kind of edgy, not edgy dichotomy is uh, the humor writer Dave Barry, who I don't think anyone would ever describe as edgy, mm-hmm. um, but extraordinarily successful and I think also very funny. One of the really remarkable things that Dave Barry has done in his career that you talked to him about was write something funny every week for 20 years or so. I can't remember exactly how long his column ran. Um, What was it that attracted you to to talking about Dave Barry, who does a very different kind of humor writing than than a lot of the other writers in the book? Well, I think this is a case of someone working within the parameters to a much more uh, intense degree than those who write for magazines or books or movies or television. This is someone who writes for a syndicated column in newspapers. I used to work as an editor at the Washington Post syndicate, and I can tell you that if, it, if anything was slightly off, if, if a joke was slightly blue, we would get a million letters. Uh, so I admired him for being able to do what he did uh, within those parameters. He also influenced a lot of humor writers. You know, when you grow up, a lot of times the first thing you read are either comic strips or the humor in a newspaper, because it's the most... Avail- it may be different now because of the Internet, of course, but when I was growing up, that was the most available. And uh, I think he influenced a lot of people with his style, a lot of people. And there's this story that people in comedy all have these uh, traumatic experiences that cause them to seek the approval of others. Um, how, how did you find that to be true and uh, not true in the case of comedy writers? Well, I, Mitch Hurwitz actually said that the thing he, he noticed most about humor writers is that they either had a very, very boring childhood or a very, very rough childhood. Um, and he's, in both cases, he said, people have to go inward. You know, in his case, it was a very pleasant childhood, but sort of boring and lonely. Uh, and he went inward and created worlds by himself through creative means and writing and acting and whatever. Which is interesting because this comedy now is anything but inward. Um, but I, I think others too. I think mo- in most cases it was a case of not quite fitting in. You know, if you can go to parties, if you can do all this stuff, you wouldn't have stayed home and r- written. You know, it's like anything. It's, it's like practicing the violin. No one's going to practice a violin at a party. But if if you're not going to parties, then you have time to practice a violin. A lot of these people just spend a lot of time alone. We talked a, a little bit about um, George Meyer and the way that his writing for The Simpsons 
had a, a slight ideological bent. Did you talk to any writers whose comedy was driven by convictions about um, politics or, or the world uh, around them? Well, I think a lot of people try to avoid that. And a couple of the writers use Art Buckwald as a reference. Here is someone who was very, very popular at the time, and he had a syndicated column. By the time he died, uh, or he stopped writing, I should say, his column was no more than 100 words, I think. It was the size of a postage stamp. I don't know how he quite did it. But when he was in his prime during the Nixon years, he was cranking them out, and he was cranking books out as well. But if you go into a library now... I think uh, one wouldn't necessarily pick out an Art Buckwald book because it's just so dated. So I think a lot of these writers uh, try to avoid that and try to tether their comedy more towards character rather than to current events. Why then do people... I mean, you just... From reading this book, it's it's so clear how difficult a road to hoe becoming a comedy writer is and in fact the book I think is is targeted in in some way or at least partly at people who are interested in becoming a comedy writer. So it's so clear that this is just this incredibly difficult task. What did you find motivated people to go through all these horrible hoops and trials in order to become comedy writers, rather than just being the funny guy at the plant? Well, I don't think they felt they had much of a choice. This was, well, I, I think actually a lot of funny guys at plants now are those who didn't make it. There's plenty of those who didn't make it, and each of the writers speak about the talent that they came up with that are working tables now still and are working as teachers, working as uh, whatever. So I think, uh, you, you know, one just doesn't hear about that. But there, there's a real hunger with everyone I spoke to and you, you can just that's why they're miserable now there's still there's still a hunger for them to achieve there's never a sense of uh, hey I made it I'm gonna sit back and just relax now well Mike thank you so much for taking all this time to be on the Sound of Young America it was so great to have you on the show hey great thank you Jesse Mike Sachs is a writer for Vanity Fair his brand new and, and really wonderful book is called and here's the kicker conversations with 21 top humor writers on their craft That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our editor is Nick White. Our music provided by Dan Wally. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you will find not only the Sound of Young America, but also our other awesome programs like Jordan Jesse Go, our freewheeling comedy talk show. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me, my email address, my actual email address. It's the same one my mom uses to email me is jesse j-e-s-s-e at maximumfund.org we'll see you next time right here on the sound of young america our interview with mike Sachs was recorded at the studios of the radio foundation in new york with engineer robert alt <laughs>